0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We're looking at Acts chapter 15, verse 1 through 35, which I entitled, A Crucial Juncture in the Church. This event that we're going to read about, it's often described as the Jerusalem Council where the believers got together to discuss a pretty important matter that came up early on. Let's begin reading. In verse 1 and 2, we're told while Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers that unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. So apparently, Paul and Barnabas were stationed in Antioch. They spent some time there, and this really became the central hub of the early church. The The shift uh, moved from Jerusalem and moved westward to Antioch. And this is where Paul and Barnabas started to launch off their missionary journeys. So as they were spending time there, we're told that these guys came in and they were teaching that these believers needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. These people were sometimes referred to as the Judaizers um, by scholars, and they taught that you needed to get circumcised. Now, the significance behind this was that in the Old Testament, God taught that every person in the household of Israel needed to undergo circumcision as a sign of his agreement with his people. And so, some people, as they encountered Judaism, were interested in converting to Judaism, but they didn't want to go and take that extra step of going under the knife. And you can imagine why. I mean, you know, here are these grown people, and they believe in the, the God of the Bible, but there was no local anesthesia, it was pretty brutal. And so they decided that they were going to follow Judaism, but they weren't going to take that extra step. And so these people, these Judaizers were going around to the different places that Paul was, uh, and Barnabas were establishing churches and teaching that in addition to following Jesus, you also needed to get circumcised. And we'll find out the significance of that in here in a little bit. Now, Paul and Barnabas were really upset about this, and they started arguing vehemently with these people. Now, we get a little bit of insight into what Paul was probably saying to these guys from a book that he wrote called Galatians. And this letter was addressed to the believers in Galatia, and Paul was trying to cut out this growing cancer inside of this church that was spreading. And really, the the what we can tell is that these people who are coming into Galatia were probably the same individuals. These Judaizers in Acts chapter 15, teaching that it's about Jesus and receiving what he has to offer, but in addition to that, you also need to get circumcised. Paul explains in Galatians 5 verse 2 and 3, If you're counting on circumcision to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. I'll say it again. If you're trying to find favor with God by being circumcised, you must obey every regulation in the whole law of Moses. So this wasn't just some sort of symbolic act in order to identify yourself with the nation of Israel. Getting circumcised actually meant that you were taking the whole weight of the Old Testament law upon your shoulders, and that you were agreeing to obey that. So essentially what they were teaching was that you need Jesus' forgiveness, but in order to supplement that, you also need to obey the law. And so that's why Paul was upset. Paul, in this letter, in very sharp terms, puts this, this concept of working your way to God and receiving his gift of forgiveness through Christ in opposition to one another. We see this in Galatians 2.21, maybe one of the best verses on this. He says, I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if, I, if keeping the law could make us right with God, then Christ died needlessly. That's a really good point, right? If, if you could earn your way to God by good works then what was the point of Jesus dying? If you could attain that through uh, trying to follow the law in a fastidious way. Now, he uses this term grace, which today we're not really sure what that means. It sounds like a church term that we've probably heard back when we used to attend church or we heard Christians talking about this concept of grace Grace just simply means a gift. In Greek, it's the word charis. And that's actually where we get the word charity from. It describes a handout that you get. And Paul defends this concept of grace adamantly in all of his letters. He's saying you you can't mix this concept of God's grace, a free gift, with your good works. Those two things are just incompatible. You know, imagine your birthday's coming up and your parents say, you know, uh, on your birthday, we'd like to have you over for dinner. I want to cook you a nice meal. And so you go over and as you're wrapping up your dinner, your dad says to you, hey, why don't you step onto the garage? I want to show you something. So you walk out there and sitting there in the garage is a Ferrari GTB 488, a $260,000 car. And he hands you the keys and says, I wanna give you a new car. You know, your Honda Civic that you've been driving around for the last 10 years, it's served you well, but we think that you need something a little bit more reliable, so we we picked this up at the dealership. (laughs) And so your dad's like, you know, there are two things that I want to tell you about this car. First of all, your mother and I love you very much, and this is a gift from us to you. And you're like, oh, thanks, Mom, Dad, love you. <laughs> and then he says, the second thing you need to know is that this thing has 660 horsepower, and it goes zero to 60 in 2.9 seconds, so just be careful with it, okay? It's a little faster than your Honda Civic. Oh, and then, by the way, um, your first payment of $4,000 is due next month. You know, at that point, you could just hear the record just stop, you know? It's like, what? My first payment? You probably hand the keys back over to your dad at that point, like, uh, that's not what we signed up for here. You know, we understand that when somebody gives us a gift, we expect that it's free. And even if our parents went half on a loan with us, we wouldn't say that my parents gave gave me a gift. We'd say, my parents helped me out, right? We would distinguish those two things. They helped me get this car. A gift implies that it's free. And so likewise... You know, Paul is saying that it's either a gift, which implies that it's free, or it's something that you work for. It can't be both. And trying to mix the two implies that it's not free at all. Well, we read in verse 2 of chapter 15 again, that finally the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem accompanied by some local believers to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. So they decided, look, we're deadlocked here in this discussion. And since we can't resolve this here, we need to have like a summit, including Paul and Barnabas, as well as the apostles, guys like Peter and James. And we're just going to hammer this out until we come to a conclusion, since it's such an important issue. We're essentially saying that In order to follow Christ, you need to take on this Jewish identity by following the Old Testament law, which, as you can imagine, would be a real barrier for a lot of people receiving Christ. This event actually is recorded in the book of Galatians, and Paul gives us his rendition of these events in his own words. Turns out, the apostle Peter was actually swept up in this as well. We read in Acts chapter or Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. When Peter came to Antioch, I had opposed him to his face for what he was doing. He was very wrong. When he first arrived, he was eating with the Gentile believers who weren't circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. So, uh, first of all, he mentions James. We should differentiate this James from the James that we read about earlier in the book of Acts. That guy got killed. He's history. This James was actually the brother of Jesus, the half brother of Jesus. And from what we can tell, James did not believe in Jesus during Jesus' life, that he was the Messiah. I mean,. You can kind of understand where he's coming from. Imagine if one of your siblings told you that they were the Messiah and that you needed to worship them. Uh, You'd be like, dude, whatever, you know? But after Jesus died and rose from the dead, he apparently appeared to James and his other family members and was like, what's up now, James? (laughs) Thought I was kidding, huh? And so James became one of the great leaders of the early church. He stationed himself in Jerusalem and led that church there for many years. So James was there, or uh, these people came from James. We're told that Peter, because he was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision, as a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy And even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. You know, apparently, uh, what was driving this was that Peter was afraid of how these people might view him. We're told that these people were also insisting on the necessity of circumcision. So that helps us to identify these guys as the same individuals there in Acts chapter 15. Now, a little bit more background on these guys. When you look to ancient Jewish tradition, that is, extra-biblical writings, the rabbis taught that if you intermingled with a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, that that would actually render you ceremonially ceremonially unclean. They viewed sin as like uh, some sort of virus that you could catch. And so the Jews often didn't mingle with the Gentile people because they were afraid of them. They were afraid that they would be defiled. And so God actually came to Peter in a vision in Acts chapter 10 and commanded Peter to go with these Gentiles who showed up within minutes of having this vision and led him to this guy named Cornelius, a Gentile who eventually receives Christ. And Peter, with his own eyes, actually saw the Holy Spirit descend upon uh, Cornelius and all of his household. And so Peter knew that these Gentile people were actually coming to Christ and that God had accepted them. So it wasn't like Peter was falling into the false teaching that these guys were talking about. It's that he was afraid of of, of how they would view him that he says the other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy. You know, Peter was succumbing to people-pleasing. This concept where we care so much about what people think about us that we're, we're willing to really go against some of our convictions to follow God. And this got Peter into trouble 15 years earlier when he was sitting in a courtyard as Jesus was undergoing trial and he was denying Jesus while Jesus stood there watching. And so we see that this same problem shows back up in Peter's life and that this was actually spreading among the other believers. That the other Jewish believers were looking at Peter who were hanging out, you know, he was hanging out with the Gentiles before these Judaizers showed up. And then as soon as they strut in, you know, Peter distances himself from them. And they're starting to wonder, like, well, what should we do? And they sided with Peter, since he was such an influential leader in the early church. And we're told that even Barnabas fell into this hypocrisy as well. Oh, my gosh. I mean, Barnabas, he's one of the real good guys in the book of Acts. You know, this dude, when he came to Christ sold his entire tract of land and gave his money to the apostles for the distribution of food to the poor. This guy was so persuasive and was so powerful and motivating people that the early church actually nicknamed him Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement. And he was like Paul's right-hand man on many of these missionary journeys that we read about in the book of Acts. And so even Barnabas got caught up in this as well. It's pretty savage. Well, there was really only one man who stood in the way of legalism completely flooding the early church. And you can imagine how Paul must have felt. You know, he's standing there alone as Peter, who he describes as one of the pillars of the early church, decided to give in to his people-pleasing and was demonstrating this hypocrisy. His right-hand man, Barnabas, betrayed him as well and sided with Peter. You know, probably the only reason why Paul was able to stand firm in his conviction about God accepting the Gentiles was because God actually directly revealed it to him in a vision, saying, that it's only by grace that you are saved, not by your good works. And so he couldn't deny that. He couldn't get that out of his head. Well, we're told that when I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, since you are a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws, and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? Man. He walk, you know, he struts up to Peter, who's sitting there hanging out, hobnobbing with these Judaizers, sitting there at the table as the Gentile believers are just like, why is he, why doesn't he want to hang out with us anymore? And Paul just walks straight up to him and he just busts him out in front of hundreds of people. And I would have given like a hundred dollars or maybe a thousand dollars to be like a fly on the wall to see this happen as uh, Paul just laid down the boom on this guy, he calls him out for his hypocrisy. He says, we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law, and we have believed in Christ so that we may be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we've obeyed the law, for no one will ever be made right uh, with God by the law. I don't know how many different ways Paul could say the same exact thing. But he's doing this for emphasis. He wants to impress upon these Galatian believers. It is, it's by faith, not by good works. He uses this term here, made right. In other translations, it reads justification or justified. And this was actually a legal term that they would use to describe someone who was acquitted. And so... In the same way that today, you know, a jury will acquit somebody because they can't find enough evidence to convict this person beyond a reasonable doubt to show them guilty. In the same way, God gives us an acquittal for our moral wrongdoing. That he renders us innocent because of what Christ has done. And he says, For no one will ever be made right with God by the law. You know, this this concept of us trying to work with God, essentially, uh, that's a self-salvation project that we're trying to pull off. And, you know, although most people today don't look to the Old Testament law as a guide for trying to be good enough to follow God and to make it into heaven, most people, if you talk to them on the street, would say, well... I believe that it's about trying to be a good person or being good enough. And then God will actually like receive me or accept me. But it raises the question, what does it mean to be good? What's your standard? How good is good enough? You know, if you compare yourself to someone like Charles Manson, right? You're like, okay, I'm better than that dude. But if you start comparing yourself to, you know, Mother Teresa or, I don't know, Tim Tebow, <laughs> you might feel a little bit uncertain, right? Like, I, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty good, but not like that. You know, what, what, would, what would we think if God said this arbitrary standard that you have set up, whereby you compare yourself to other people, typically people who are worse than you, and say, I think I'm good enough. What if he said, you're completely wrong? What if God told you that the true standard of what's right and wrong, what's good, depends on his own character? Which means that his standard is moral perfection. Uh, that'd be a little bit scary. That would change things, wouldn't it? Think about what Paul says in uh, in Romans 3, verse 23 says, For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. You know, if God sets the standard based on his own moral character, that means it's perfection. And none of us can obtain perfection. I mean, we would all admit that. We're not good enough. And so therefore, we have fallen short of his standard. And we are guilty before him. In another passage, Paul says in Galatians 3.10 and 11, But those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under God's curse. For the scripture says, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commandments that are written in the law. Notice that phrase he says there. "Who Who does not observe and obey all the commandments that are written in the law. Not just the ones that we're really good at or the ones that we selectively focus on. All of them. I think this passage is incredible because Paul isn't just saying this based on his own intuition, he's citing the Old Testament. That passage is Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. So from the very beginning, God never intended for people to look to the law as a, as a way, as a guide for salvation. If anything, the law has been a, a way to demonstrate or show us our imperfection, to show us that we've fallen short of his standard. And then he says that it's we're made right with God or that we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ, by believing, by faith. He says that over and over again that we need to actually receive this. I think that part's important. God makes this available to us, but he's not going to force it upon us. God's relational. He wants to make sure that if we want to enter into a relationship with him, that we do so voluntarily, not that he's compelling us. So he makes this gift, this grace available to all of us. You know, God says that Jesus came to earth and died in order to sacrifice himself for us to open up this free gift to all people. But it requires us turning to God and asking for that gift. You know, imagine during Christmas time, one of your like rich relatives sends you this gift through the mail. And since it's so expensive, it's got signature confirmation So when you show up after work one day, you see on your door, there's this little pink slip there that says that the carrier came by, but you weren't around to sign this thing. And so this package, this gift is at the post office. You need to pick it up if you want it. And so you intend on getting it, but then, you know, you get distracted because you have a lot of schoolwork or you've got, you know, all this stuff you have to do, or maybe you just are too lazy to get up off the couch and go to the post office and get your gift. It doesn't matter what your excuse is. The point is that unless you go to the post office and retrieve your gift, you're never going to be able to enjoy the benefits of that. And likewise, I think it's easy for us to get distracted. Or God may have set us on a path of investigation, but we're too lazy to keep thinking about it. And so we just give up the search. The gift is available to us. God wants to offer us eternal salvation for free. The only thing we need to do is come to him and receive it. Well, the thing about Galatians is that it never tells us if Paul got through to Peter and Barnabas in the early church. It sort of leaves us with this little cliffhanger. So let's go back to Acts chapter 15, verse 2, backtrack a little bit and then read the rest of the narrative to see how this all unfolds. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent the delegates to Jerusalem, and they stopped along the way to Phoenicia, Samaria, and to visit the believers there. And Paul and Barnabas told them, much to everyone's joy, that the Gentiles, too, were being converted. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders, and they reported everything that God had done through them. But then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted that Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. You know, Paul and Barnabas were like, can, can I at least like uh, take a shower and uh, have some dinner before we get into this? Right away, they're confronted by these guys, the Judaizers. We're given a little bit more information about them that they were actually from the sect of the Pharisees. So apparently a number of Pharisees came to Christ shortly after Jesus died and was raised, and that a lot of these Pharisaic believers were still clinging on to the Old Testament law, their old Jewish identity. This event, what takes place next, I would say, would be easily the most important event in the early church. You know, imagine if Paul and Barnabas lost this. Who knows what would have happened. It would have threatened to completely eradicate the church and turn it back into this legalistic, works-based religion that you see worldwide. Rendering Christianity just one among many religions out there that, te- that teaches that you need to work your way to God. And so this was an important event, a real turning point, I believe, in the early church. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood up and addressed them. Oh, man, last we heard from Peter, you know, he's sitting there. His face was probably burning as Paul was confronting him in front of all these people, hundreds of people. I know if I was in his situation, I'd probably just uh, be trembling with anger. And I'm sure that he probably was thinking to himself, you know... You know, you could talk to me the way you did there in Antioch, but this is Jerusalem, pal. This is my hood. So what were you saying again back up in Antioch? Peter was, was the most influential leader in the early church. He, he held so much sway over the believers that really, wherever he turned probably would be the direction that the rest of the church would have turned and followed. Well, Peter says, brothers, you know, all that God chose, that that, that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. He's referring to that event there in the book of Acts that we mentioned in Acts 10. He said, God knows people's hearts and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. Oh, whoa. So Peter, you know, I'm sure as he was just tumbling this event in his mind over and over again for for weeks or months leading up to this, he finally landed on the right side of this, this argument. And so he says to them, why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were even able to bear? He makes a real good point. He says, you know, why are we trying to throw this yoke upon these Gentile people when we were never able to work our way to God? We all fell short. Look at our history. If it didn't work for us, what makes you think it's going to work for them? He says we believe that we're all saved by the same way, by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And so Peter shows up uh, and redeems himself from his hypocrisy. And I believe that his humility and loyalty to God's truth made him the second hero of this story. You know, the first hero was Paul who stood in the face of all of this opposition. And yet Peter demonstrated the kind of humility and loyalty to the truth to be able to, to make a 180 and even admit that he was wrong. That must have been really embarrassing for Peter. You know, to sit there and just take it from Paul. Paul. And, you know, I'm sure Paul probably said more than he uh, wrote to the Galatians there in Galatians 2. He probably pointed to the Judaizers and said, uh, by the way, did you know Peter over here? He was hanging out with the Gentiles. He was eating pork chops too, by the way. <laughs> I don't know if he said that, but, you know, it would be hard to recover from something like that. You know, somebody like me, that would, al- that would almost strengthen my position. Of opposition. And yet Peter softened and decided to uh, side with what God says. Well, when they finished, James stood and said, Brothers, listen to me. He said, Peter has told you about the time God visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for himself. And this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted, as it is written. Afterward, I will return and restore the fallen house of David. I'll rebuild its ruins and restore it so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles, all those I've called to be mine. The Lord has spoken. He who made these things known so long ago. So he quotes this Old Testament passage, Amos chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. And he points out that God, from the very beginning of his plan, intended to bring the Gentiles into the family of God. That he wasn't going to exclude them. And so he looks to the Old Testament as his basis. He looks to Scripture for his basis, for why they need to include the Gentiles. Nice citation. Well, we also know later on in verse 24 that these men who came from James, that they were actually lying. James said in his letter to the people of Antioch, We understand that some men from here have troubled you and upset you with their teaching, but we didn't send them. And so apparently, they came to these different groups that Paul and Barnabas had established for Christ and were coming under the false authority of the apostles, claiming that James sent them. And so James says, it's my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. Whoa, what? James is doing real good there up until this point right here. You just, you know, sometimes you just want to clip this part off and be like, okay, let's leave it there. What was he getting at here? I think... You know, Peter wasn't laying down the law again. I think what he was doing here was he was suggesting things that they should abstain from in order to make sure that they're not offending the Jewish believers. And he points out, for these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. So he knew that if they started eating these these cuts of meat that were sacrificed to idols in the temple. And if he if they ate all these unclean animals and, and ate blood, that it would offend the Jewish believers, and they, w- they would probably want to separate from them as a result. And so he said, you know, you just need to watch it. Today, that would be sort of like, you know, you should be careful that if you are, you know, hanging out with, Uh, somebody who's coming out of a devout Muslim background that you're not just like slamming on a pulled pork sandwich in front of them. That'd be like uh, pretty gross and, and highly offensive. And so you just need to watch it. And then he also talks about sexual immorality probably just for good measure. Like, oh yeah, and by the way, don't be, you know, hooking up all the time. Then he says, The apostles and elders together with the whole church in Jerusalem chose delegates and they sent them to Antioch of Syria with Paul and Barnabas to report on this decision. The men chosen were two of the church leaders. Judas, also also called Barsabbas, not to be confused with Judas, the betrayer. That dude was dead. He was history. (laughs) By his own doing. Okay, And Silas. This is the letter they took with him. This letter is from the apostles and elders, your brothers in Jerusalem. It is written to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We understand that some men here have upset you and troubled you with their teaching, but we didn't send them. So we decided, having, to, uh, having come to complete agreement, to send you official representatives, along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're sending Judas and Silas to confirm what we have decided concerning your question. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you other than the few requirements that you should abstain from eating food, sacrificed to idols, from eating blood, meat strangled animals, uh, meat of strangled animals, and sexual immorality. If you do this, you'll do well. Farewell. And the messengers went at once to Antioch where they called a general meeting of the believers and delivered the letter. And there was great joy throughout the church that day as they read this encouraging message. And Judas and Silas, both being prophets, spoke at length to the believers, encouraging and strengthening their faith. I'm, I'm certain that they weren't prophesying in the sense of they were foretelling the future. They were probably teaching and exhorting the believers. They stayed there for a while, and then the believers sent them back to the church in Jerusalem with the blessing of peace. Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch. They and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord there. And so there you have the Jerusalem Council. Let's draw some points of summary. You know, we talked extensively here about this concept of working your way to God. In the New Testament, the authors of Scripture refer to this as being under law. And to be under legalism, I think, first of all, Christianity loses its appeal and uniqueness. You know, if we say that you need to work your way to God by doing good things and avoiding bad things, what differentiates that from any other world religion? Not to mention, I think that people are sick of religion. They're tired of people just telling them that they need to, to live a moral life and to try to earn their way to God or to heaven. The message of grace stands out as distinct. Something that, you know, if a human being spent a lot of time thinking about it, probably would never come up with. The concept that God would freely give us salvation. Secondly, any man-made religion offers works-based self-improvement. That's nothing special. We see that in Buddhism. The idea that you need to avoid karma in order to achieve nirvana. Nirvana. Um, and it's all about what you do, how hard you work. Or when you think about Islam, it's about trying to work hard with maybe the hope that God will accept you, possibly. You know, the workspace mentality really shatters our dependence on God. So, you know, for those of us who are following Christ, bringing this legalistic mindset into our relationship with God essentially destroys the dependence that God wants to have with us where we turn to him to provide for our needs, to give us wisdom, to give us guidance, to lead us in a relational way. Instead, it replaces it with a mechanistic way of trying to relate to God. And finally, legalism replaces relationship. You know, it it becomes, we, we, we create a relationship with God that resembles more of a relationship that we have with our boss rather than we do a loving father or a friend. When we talk about radical grace, on the other hand, it's always the first thing to go. You know, this is one of the reasons why we study our way through entire books Because we want to make sure to emphasize what God emphasizes, not what we think is going to be relevant to people and their lives. And it turns out God talks a lot about fighting for the grace of God. Because when you look around at many of the churches in America that are highly legalistic, that emphasize that you need to work your way to God, otherwise He's going to condemn you or punish you. Many of those churches began as grace focused fellowships. And slowly, as time went on, the cancer of legalism started to grow and metastasize throughout that body of Christ, leaving it a shell of what it was. Don't think that, when, that can't happen to us. We need, we need to, to guard the grace of God because legalism creeps in in very subtle ways. Secondly, it offends human pride. You know, the concept of getting a, a free gift seems really appealing, but when we frame it as a handout that God wants to give to you, that's a little bit different. Because when we talk about a handout, that's something that you have to receive by first swallowing your pride and saying, I need this. That's hard for us to do. We'd rather have a relationship with God where we work our way to him so that at least we can, we can hold a sense of pride that we're good enough. But under grace, we have to admit that we're not. And, you know, really it inspires and excites those who see their need for it. You know, for those of you who are here tonight, you might be new to this whole concept of like the Bible and Christianity you're investigating. You need to know that God doesn't want you to work your way to him. That's impossible. Instead, he's provided a way for you to come to him that's of no cost to you. The Bible teaches that Jesus came and died a sacrificial death so that he could pay the moral wrongdoing that you deserve to pay for yourself. And if we turn to him and receive his sacrifice, his gift, we can have a relationship with God. And that that is going to continue on throughout eternity. So I challenge you, if you're here tonight, and if you feel like, you know, I feel like I'm on the verge of turning to God, you should do that tonight. God wants to know you. He wants you to invite Him into your life. Yeah, thanks that um, your grace uh, eventually leads to good works and change behavior. Um, that your love prevails in our lives, and that uh, as we learn to love you and love other people, that you uh, transform us and our character, but also that you transform the way that we relate to people as well. And um, we thank you that through your grace we can experience lasting change, as opposed to the um, you know outward, external change that we try to do through religion. And um, yeah, I agree with uh, what someone said about just how you keep hammering this topic of grace over and over again in your word. We need to hear this. We need for you to impress this in our minds. And uh, we also need you to remind us from time to time when we're slipping back into a legalistic mindset. And so I pray, Lord, for those of us who uh, find ourselves... Uh, relating to you legalistically, that we would turn to you and um, see that and, uh, you know, turn to the grace of God. And um, for those of us who've never met you uh, in the first place, that we would um, turn to Christ and uh, receive the the gift that you offer freely through Him. And uh, we thank you for anyone who did that, in Jesus' name. Amen.